The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. David Rosemarin now presents his lecture, The Connections Paradigm. JLI is really on the cutting edge of trying to um, make religion relevant in the world in which we live. And it has never been, I believe, so relevant as it is today. And I'll speak a little bit about my particular take on that. But, um, you know, I, I think in terms of that relevance, uh, what JLI is doing, which is really fa fascinating, is trying to cater to both people who are clinicians and people who are lay people. I would say maybe today, everyone's a clinician. Who here does not deal with some aspect of mental health in their day-to-day, -day, with their family, in their work, somewhere? I'm the only one who does that as a clinical psychologist? Okay, we all do. But, you know, so that being the case, you know, having a, a spiritual perspective and bringing that to wellness is, is really just what's needed today. That, this is what people are calling about. This is what people want. And to be here and, and with an organization that's doing that is just amazing. In terms of what you do professionally, let me ask, how many of you are actually clinicians? And I mean like, like you get paid to help people with mental health. Okay. Okay, what's that, 25% or so? Yeah, that's, that's what I expected. So um, the, the goal for the next 40 minutes is to describe what is known as the connections paradigm. That is a Torah framework to create human flourishing and also helps people struggling with anxiety, depression, and other aspects of mental distress, the, that which my fellow mental health colleagues and myself are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. But the reason that JLI wanted me to, pre to present this talk specifically is because it really tries to sped the gamut. It's not a clinician seminar, so it's not only for the 25%, but it's not only you know, fluffy, like how do you like, you know, uh, improve your wellness and stuff like that. Like this is actually grounded in, in, um, in, a, in a, I would say, a scientifically based approach to dealing with mental health distress. And I'm really trying to span that gamut. That's my goal. So let me know how I do. All right, so to introduce this subject, by historical standards, just stepping back a bit, Western culture is sophisticated, advanced, and incredibly wealthy. We live in this unprecedented age. I might be the only one in the room who has one of these devices <laughs> that it's incredible. You can send out a signal to anyone, anywhere in the world. They'll get back to you right away. You can you know, post on this thing called social media that millions of people can see in an instant. You can take videos. If you haven't seen these things, they're really neat. And there's also like these satellites which are circling around the Earth believe it or not, sounds almost like fiction, right? And this is connected to all those satellites. And if I move over here, it knows if I'm like here or there within like six feet. If I go outside, it can tell me how to walk back to the place where I'm staying, right? It almost sounds like science fiction, but this is the world in which we're living. It's incredible. Let me ask you about medical technologies. How many people here have benefited from a new medical technology in the last, let's say, two years that might have saved your lives from a, you know, impending virus. 
Okay, so I'm, I'm not the only one. So, and, and even if you're, you know, vax, not vax, I'm not getting into that one, but, you know, uh, like, like what about, you know, a surgery? How many people here have had a surgery or have no somebody who has ever had a surgery, right? Under anesthetic. Isn't that incredible? Okay, uh, does anyone here, I know one person who lives in Florida in the room, but does anyone here not live in Florida? Great. Who here came on a bird that has wings with like these engines and like got you here at 600 miles an hour flying through the sky in a tin can? <laughs> what kind of world do we live in? It's an incredible thing. Yet, contrast what I'm saying right now with the fact that pre-COVID, the United States National Institute on Mental Health estimated that the lifetime prevalence for a mental disorder, a full-blown, diagnosable, reimbursable mental disorder in the United States of America was 46.4%. And in any given 12-month period, there were 26.2% of our country, more than one quarter of American adults, who had a full-blown mental disorder. Does that make any sense, considering the opulence that we're living in? Do you hear that sound? You know what that is? Air conditioning. We're in Florida and it's like 68 degrees in this room. It's August. What is going on? Yet, like, there are more people walking around feeling disconnected, feeling depressed, anxious, to the point, I'm not just talking about a little bit, we're talking about to the point of dysfunction. The second leading cause of death in America for individuals under the age of 35 is suicide. That's a problem, ladies and gentlemen. That's objective, right? Because we're not just talking about definitions, like, okay, everyone's talking about anxiety today, so more people have anxiety. No, the suicide rate is through the roof. Self-injury. My colleagues in the, in the Harvard Medical School did an incredible study of healthy college students in America. And take a guess what percentage were injuring themselves on a semi-regular basis in order to cope with an emotional distress. Not that many, <laughs> not 65%, but it's 20%, <laughs> one in five healthy college students. I'm not talking about students who are going to college counseling centers for help. I'm talking about, as they say in English, STEM. STEM college students, regular, run-of-the-mill, ordinary college students, 20% of them, and a similar number have contemplated suicide seriously in the last 12 months. Yeah, whoa, finally, someone's hearing it. Um, here's another one, U.S. Veterans Affairs System, which takes care of our vets. Um, today, in post-World War II, which was objectively a much more, and even post-Vietnam, which was objectively far more bloody, far, far more uh, difficult and challenging of a war for social reasons and political reasons and for uh, just in terms of uh, the type of combat versus today, people coming back from OIF, OEF, Afghanistan, 45% of service personnel today versus 16% of those returning from Vietnam are on permanent disability with a pension because of an emotional distress. I could go on, um, but basically, if you're gonna like diagram out where American mental health lies today, the, the spectrum would be on the one hand pitiful and the other hand dangerous and like we're in that range. So why on earth are Americans, who are the most privileged people to ever walk the face of planet Earth in all of human history in such a decrepit and wretched state when it comes to our mental health? 
What is going on? And more importantly, what can we do about this in the next 20 minutes? Um, so I decided to go into the field of psychology because of these questions. And at first, you know, as an Orthodox Jew who, you know, wears one of these, I, I definitely suffered some discrimination on, based on my religious identity. This was, you know, I was going into the field 20, 25 years ago. Uh, Dr. Lisa Miller's program wasn't around yet, a place where, you know, people can come with whatever identity they have and understand spirituality or religion or anything else as it pertains to mental health. It was very um, unpleasant to get through graduate school, but I persisted. And I was blessed to spend 12 years studying through the academic system as a student, as a trainee, uh, completed my peer-reviewed publications, scientific articles, over 5,000 hours of clinical training just at that time. And I came from those experiences without a really good answer to these questions. I, I, I didn't find that my more than a decade and certainly more than 10,000 hours and 20 peer-reviewed publications had really gotten me to an understanding of why the disparity between our physical, wonderful life that we live and our mental distress is putting it mildly. I never found that answer within the academy. However, I think I found it somewhere else. I found a mentor, um, a rabbi in Israel, named Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman, or Leib Kellerman. I spoke to him, I said, like, what is the, what does the Torah have to say about this? And he said, well, it's very interesting. You know, my rabbi, Rav Shlomo Volbi, learned something from his rabbi, Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz, who learned something from his rabbi, Rav Simcha Zizelziv, who learned it from Rabbi Saul Salanter. And you can actually stretch this back all the way some 3,300 years to, uh, to the giving of the Torah at Har Sinai, in the Sinai Desert. And um, I said, really? Well, this, you know, this sounds like divine wisdom. You know, count me in because I've really tried everything else and I'm coming up empty. What do you have to say? And he introduced me to this concept, which I'm sure has its correlates within the Tanya and other sources that I'm less familiar with just by virtue of my upbringing and limited education, um, called the worlds of connection and disconnection. The olam hayedidus vazaras, pachod zaras, and the fear and connection. And the idea, or also referred to as the connections paradigm, it not only changed my religious life, but it also changed my professional perspective. And personally, I'd like to think I'm more connected as well. And the reason why, this is a very unique paradigm, I think, because firstly, it really does emerge from Torah thought. Spiritual wisdom in an authentic, unadulterated approach to mental illness. I mean, pre-Rabbi Kellerman, it was not, never written down in English at all. In fact, he didn't even write it down in English. I guess I did. This is not for the English-speaking public, interestingly. It has never been, I guess, previously. Um, but secondly, I think that the connections paradigm can explain how and why people have a broad range of mental health concerns spanning all the way from wellness or distress, lack of thriving and flourishing down to severe psychopathology, which I deal with in, in, in some capacity in my work. And I also think it's as complete, if not more complete, of a psychological theory than really anything I personally have come across in my secular studies. But the most important aspect of it, which is why I'm here today, is that I believe it's practical. There are practical ramifications for how we can build connection more in our lives, very basic, easy things that we can do. And um, 
and that is really what Connections is about. So um, I actually did write a book on the subject, which was published by Templeton Press. When they approached me a couple years ago, they said, uh, hey, how about writing something on a Jewish approach to mental disorders? And I'm like, how about this? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. So that is uh, called The Connections Paradigm. Um, that was published early 2021. And in that book, there's a description not only of the paradigm, but of 15 different, each chapter has a different facet of the paradigm with a practical tool in there and case illustrations throughout. We're not going to get to all that today, um, but I do want to at least describe the paradigm to give you an introduction to what this is about and a couple of ideas that hopefully you can use. All right. What is this connections paradigm? What does it mean to live in the world of connection? Okay. It can be summarized as follows. At any moment in time, human beings dwell in one of two worlds. We are either in the world of connection or the world of disconnection. And we go in and out of these modes, these worlds, as it's put, at any moment in time, we can dart in and out of those spaces. And of course, people and our circumstances are complicated, but at each moment in time, we can essentially choose and through really simple choices. It could be as subtle as turning towards someone versus not paying attention, or it could be as subtle as an internal thought that we have about ourselves. It, there, these are, it's a real subtlety to dwelling in the world of connection or slipping into disconnection. But essentially, all of those choices that we make on a micro basis either create more love and closeness, or they create more distance and isolation. How, what is the love and closeness part? Let's talk about that. So connection involves always the coming together of two separate entities. Think about it. If you have two things, they can connect. One thing can't really connect to anything. So it's always two things connecting to each other or disconnecting from each other. The connection between body and soul is the first level also known as interconnection, between us and others, also known as interpersonal connection, and then, any guesses? Ha, how about that, the spirituality piece, uh, between us and God, um, our relationship with um, spirituality. And those are three domains in which you have completely different entities that can either connect or disconnect at any moment in time, okay? Importantly to the connections model, these are hierarchical. Our relationship with, well, at the top level, our relationship with God is constrained by the degree to which we have a connection with other people. I'm going to say that again. Our relationship with God is constrained, restricted, by the degree to which we have a connection with other people. Somebody who's seeking spirituality and doesn't have good relationships with their friends it's not gonna last. The religious thing is not gonna last. And you've all seen in your lives, I'm sure, many people who are spiritual in their way, connecting to God, so to speak, but they're jerks. <laughs> and it doesn't last. Those usually, the bottom will fall out. The bottom of that bucket does fall out after a period of time. Because it's not on a base. It's not on a firm base. And furthermore, perhaps more important, healthy, thriving relationships between us and other people is predicated on the fundamental relationship of us with, with ourselves. 
body and soul connection. And how many relationships have you seen that have blown up because people don't get enough sleep, because they're workaholics, because they're not able to navigate their own needs in the context of a relationship and say what I really can or cannot do? This paradigm explains a lot of issues, as I'll try to articulate in our limited time. The bottom line is that we have a hierarchy or a pyramid. On the bottom, relationship with ourselves. The second level, relationship with others. And the third level is our spiritual connection. That's integral to the paradigm. Another piece of the par paradigm is that what we see is that mental distress is experienced, of course, to the extent to which one dwells in the world of disconnection. And people thrive and flourish when they're connected. So this should be, in theory, a tool, a, a, a concept or a, a way of generating tools to flourish and to thrive in life and to avoid the pitfalls. Let's see what that looks like. Okay, body and soul connection. Of the three domains of connection, in, interconnection is the most fundamental, but it's also the most abstract. And the reason why is because if I'm speaking to you or you're speaking to me or we're interacting with each other, then like I'm here and you're there and you can physically see it. But let's say I'm having a conversation with myself. Like, who's speaking, what's going on, who are the entities? It even looks kind of weird, right? So what is that? So interconnection is harder to grasp because it occurs at a mysterious inner world. But it's, it's no less practical or pragmatic. I'll prove it to you. Well, firstly, I'll give you some Torah concepts behind it. Rav Moshe Chaim Litzato, the great, the great 18th century Kabbalist, he wrote about the division between a human body and soul. And he said, it's not an abstract metaphor, it's actually very literal. The human being is made up of two discrete entities that are actually real. Now, it might not show up if in, a, in an fMRI, apparently not, according to Andrew Newberg, um, which I think he's right. Um, you might see the effects of spiritual engagement on the body, but I don't think that's the soul. Um, but uh, the, the, the bigger thing is that these are two entities that actually exist. Interestingly, in the Hebrew language, how do you say hello to somebody? Shalom. What's a typical way of saying that? Shalom Aleichem. Okay, interesting. Are there any linguists in the audience? I know there is, because somebody, at least one person gave me their book. So Aleichem, in the back, plural or singular? It's plural. So when I say hello to you, why am I saying hello, yous, peace unto yous? What is that? What's it about? So... I don't know, I'm, I just work here, but the could be if at a mystical level that we're greeting both parts. Shalom Aleichem means hello to your body and hello to your soul. I've been, a couple times in my life, I've had the opportunity to visit some Kabbalists. It's not like a regular thing I do, but once in a while, you know, if I'm in Israel and feeling like particularly inspired, I'll, I'll, I'll go and see somebody. And I, many, of, and like legit Kabbalists, right? Um, and many of them will say, Shalom, Shalom. And once I had the chutzpah, the audacity to ask, like, why are you saying shalom, shalom? And he's like, shalom, shalom. <laughs> I'm like, oh, right, duh. <laughs> like, there's two of me. <laughs> I'm not, not, right? Not just one. <laughs> like, I'm, it's actually both. Okay, so I get that. So what are these two entities? So on the one hand, your body is physical. It has needs, like real needs. It has senses, motivations, wants, um, social engagement, mental stimulation, sleep, Huge. Sleep is enormous. Um, food, drink, um, physical activity. These are all needs of the body. And if we're not aware of those and having conversations, so to speak, with our body and providing for those, 
then there's not a lot of shalom bias, as they say, <laughs> not a lot of peace in the home. Um, at the same time, we have a soul, and that is a very different creature, which is non-physical. It's beyond the realm of conscious perception in some ways. It, it's very idealistic. It doesn't care about physical pleasure. Like, ice cream doesn't matter to the soul. Um, it might even find ice cream repulsive. Um, can you imagine that? Weird, right? Um, physical beauty doesn't really matter. It's really more a long-term achievement. What are my objectives? What, are my, what am I striving towards? What do I want to do with my life? And um, it's usually long-term, long-term focused, not short-term focused. The body would be more short-term focused. At least mine is very <laughs> short-term focused. And you can imagine how these two entities do not make the most ideal partnership, like what was God thinking, you know, comes to mind. Like, if you're going to pair up two more different creatures, then, like, you're, sure, have the idealist and then the pragmatist and put them in, in one apartment and they, like, can't get out of it together for entire life. Like, sure, great idea, let's do this. But the, the reality of connection is that that was actually intended and can create peace, real inner peace. Um, when they actually understand that there are two different facets here and you're, you're, there's, there's two different creatures. Um, even their language is different. You know, a lofty spiritual perspective is often not practical. How many times have you been to a spirituality class and you're like, that was mind-blowing and I have no clue what to do? <laughs> right? So that's, that's not speaking to the body. It might be speaking to your soul and it might be a good thing, whatever. We can talk about that in terms of education. But the main thing is, what does your body take home from it? Something really practical, like do this now. Okay, I can do that. You know, but then it also has to be, you know, titillating and you know, exciting for the soul as well. Like there's something which has to blow your mind. Everybody wants that. Or many, most people want that, I should say. So even though they're very different and they have similar, they have, you know, they're together, they can connect in a big way. Their goal is to get close and stay close in a symbiotic, I would say, although that's very animalistic, mutually beneficial relationship. Our mental wellness and our distress rely on this. I'll give you a case. A 42-year-old female lawyer in New York City. My clinical offices are based in New York, so a lot of my cases are New York-based. Um, uh, married, two children, total workaholic. She has stress so bad it gives her a migraine. And she often drinks on the weekends to excess while she's out with her girlfriends um, because she just is so had it by Friday night, the time it comes through. It's been like a 60-hour week and she's been pushing it, and she just needs to, like, chill. And, I mean, on the one hand, she's living a valued life, and she says to me, well, I feel fulfilled because I'm married, I got kids, I got my job, like, I'm doing good things in the world. I'm like, yeah, that's your soul, but, like, how's your body doing? She's like, miserable. It's, it's miserable. I can't, I can, New York is oppressive. By the way, I don't know how anyone lives in New York. I, I really don't. I really don't. I, I live in Boston. I work, I worked, I used to work more, but in New York, and for sure quality of life is a lot better, by the way, despite the commute. But anyhow, she was so miserable because she wasn't getting enough sleep. I'm like, do you have breakfast? She's like, on a Saturday morning. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, we need a couple of, couple of calories in you before we start the day. Do you exercise? She's like, <clears throat> Right. That's funny. I'm like, do you even go for a walk? Like, no. I'm like, your office is near Central Park. You can't take a 30-minute break and go for a walk? She's like, I probably could, but like, 
I'm like, but what? You're too busy being an idealist and you're not focusing on what your physical needs are. Do you have fun? No. I'm like, you're too young to be miserable, Jessica. Like, let's, let's have some fun. Join a kickboxing class. Get some exercise in your, you know. How about some sleep? Like, even like, let's get up to six hours, you know. If you're not getting six hours of sleep, by the way, then you need to come see me. Anybody in this audience must speak to me professionally if you're not getting six hours of sleep. Um, just kidding. But seriously, we need at least six hours of sleep. How many people do that, by the way? How many people get it? Look, you go, nice. Hey, a lot more. Lisa, I'm impressed. All right, my average is 7.3 hours, 7.3 to 7.5 hours of sleep. And yes, I have the data to prove that. Anyhow. You can see, I'm just giving you one case example, but I think you can see readily how this relates to anxiety and depression and substance and alcohol use and eating disorders. Oh my God, right? The whole thing is, you know, do I respect my body for who he or she is? Do I understand that, you know, there's a fluctuate, there's just natural fluctuations of the human condition? Do I only pursue relentlessly the image that I have for myself or do I allow myself to actually eat? Do I respect that need that I have? Um, things like overuse of technology, self-care, self-esteem. The whole puzzle unravels when you see it through this lens of me having a body and a soul and they have to connect with each other. Because yeah, I have this idealistic side that's striving towards something, but I also have this body and they have to, they have to get along. So one practical tool is to have communication. Communication is a central, central and essential to all relationships and interconnection is no different. So the soul and body need to be connecting and need to be speaking. And yeah, yes, I'm about to recommend that you have conversations with yourselves, speak to yourselves. Yes, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist telling you that you should speak to yourselves. But the reason is because you already do. How many people wake up sometimes and they're like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Can you believe you did that, David? Can you believe you said that? Like, what kind of a moron are you, right? Am I the only one who has negative conversations with myself? So I am? Okay, primarily. <laughs> so the question is, can I just, obviously I'm conversing anyway, so like might as well be productive about that. Like, let's call a spade a spade. And if you feel weird about it, then either do it in private or don't move your lips. But the bottom line is some sort of communication, like this is what I want to accomplish, but at what cost? And these, these are what my needs are. And if I'm not motivated, then why? Like, have I not taken care of my physical needs? I was speaking to somebody the other day, it's a bit off script, but important, who didn't have any dreams. They didn't have any idealism. And I'm like, you don't want to do anything in this world? They're like, no. I'm like, but like, don't you have something to offer? Like, nah. I'm like, what's your schedule like? And they're like, I don't really have a schedule, you know? Do you eat? Nah. Like, two weeks of self-care, having a schedule, like waking up at, by 8 a.m., getting out, going to the gym, getting to bed on a certain time, and having a little bit of social activity, within two weeks, all of a sudden, they were able to dream. Before that, they couldn't dream. They couldn't tolerate having an idea or an ideal to strive towards because their body was so depleted. It's kind of like if you don't put gas in your car, then it's not gonna drive. That's what it's like. Or like whatever electricity, whatever it is these days that powers our vehicles. Anyhow, let's move on to interpersonal connection, which involves the connection between two people. Now, at first glance, you might think that this is more straightforward than interconnection because, well, 
there's us and other people, it's sort of clear. But at the same time, it's actually a lot more complicated. It's, it's very, very complicated to do. And especially if a person's lacking in the interconnection, then like, God help you. Um, there are two primary aspects, which is when we notice the needs of other people and then we provide for those needs. But it's not so simple that we're just taking care of other people. It's much more complicated. It's doing so in a way that it actually involves giving and noticing who they are, not just providing. I'm gonna say that again. There's a distinction between giving to someone, which means really noticing what they need and providing for them, which might or might not be dependent on what they need. If you give someone flowers because they love flowers, then okay, fine. But let's say you're doing it because like, you wanna be the person who got them flowers. Who are you giving to? Right, or like giving donations to control an organization. Um, I'm not getting political, don't worry. <laughs> um, or showing interest in somebody, but it's really about you. Right? There, there's a lot of examples of this where we're actually interacting with other people and maybe even physically providing for them, but we're not in the world of connection. We're not, we're not really building our relationship with them and getting outside of ourselves and noticing their needs and providing for their needs. The world of connection means I'm not only focused on myself, I'm getting outside of that barrier and moving into the other person to draw them close. It's an impossible thing. I believe in psychology they call it altruism, and um, it's seemingly an impossible thing. But according to the connections paradigm, it's not. By the way, very importantly, very importantly, taking from somebody could be for your own purposes. I need, I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want, I want, right? Like a teenager. Um, or it could be, I really need you right now. I really, really need your help right now. And the other person's like, I'm in. Like somebody who loves, if you're in a close relationship with somebody, they probably want to take care of you. I, I hope to God they do. <laughs> if not, then it's, harm, then, it's, then it's complicated. That's real complexity. But if you're in a close relationship with someone and they want to take care of you, there's such a pathology today in relationships that people don't rely on the others in their lives that want to take care of them and they don't let them. They don't let them. They don't say, hey, I really need you right now. I'll tell you as a male and as an academic, this is really hard. It's really, really hard for me personally. I'm speaking very autobiographically here. I do know that my relationship with my wife, I'll be very personal here right now, it grew by leaps and bounds when I was able to say to her, I'm having a really hard day and I, I, I really could use some love and support right now, right? Like as an academic, you know, it's like especially in mental health, like, like I sh right? It, it's a tough one, but it's true. Like I have a tough day and I call her up and I'm like, Miri, like help me out. And she loves it, she loves it, it lights her up. Thank God, um, I'm, really, I'm really lucky. Um, but the, the, so for me taking in that context, it's, it's not taking. I mean, yeah, I need it, don't get me wrong, but it's actually a gift. To give somebody the opportunity to take care of you, as long as they want it or need to, to do that, that's a gift to them. It's not selfish to take. It's not selfish to take. 
depending on the context of the relationship. I'll give you an example. Maurice, a 32-year-old man, and he came to me, he was struggling in his marriage. And his wife, Jennifer, often criticized him, and his solution was duck and cover, baby. He's avoiding her like crazy. And then she just like ramps up and up and up and up, like text messages, where are you, Maurice? And he's like, oh, I'm out playing cards, right? Like he's just completely checked out, at home watching basketball, like watching reruns from like four seasons ago. And she's like, what is going on here? Avoid spending time with her. They haven't had physical intimacy in over three months. She's really frustrated. You're not being a man. Then he gets even more hurt and he moves back. So what do you do? I'll tell you what I did. Um, so the truth is, Maurice actually is very hurt and pained by his wife's aggression and by her cutting him down. And he actually, in some ways, needs her. And she wants him to need him so badly. He's, she's frustrated to no end that the guy's like completely ghosting her in her own house. So bless you. And, um, we found some ways for him to actually say, like, hey, babe, like, I want a relationship with you more than anything, but this is what I need in the, right now. And she was thrilled to be able to provide that for him, and it started to bring them more into a, a sphere of closeness. Often when people have altercations with each other, they go into their own corners. I don't need you. You don't need me. Forget it. We can stay together because, like, let's not break up the family. But at the end of the day... I'm not really going to be real with you about what I need. And do me a favor and keep the, keep the anger to yourself. And of course, that makes sense. But in the most extreme sense, in the most extreme cases, you get to psychopathy, a little bit lower on the scale, narcissism. I don't care about you. It's not about your needs. It's not about connecting with you at all. Borderline personality disorder in some cases. Broader issues, though, are just marriage and family functioning, being able to say to people, hey, I really need you, or hey, what are your needs? How can I take care of you? Professional and business environments, we see this happening all the time, where people aren't connecting with each other, and they take it home. It's amazing, the, the attachment literature today, how we are wired to have connection with each other. And when we don't, it, it's, it's the stress that comes out of it, it's, it's not only palpable emotionally, but you can see it neurobiologically. There's incredible research on pain that when people have a connected relationship with someone, when they feel secure, when they feel like they can open up to them and they'll take care of them and vice versa, that if you cause them pain in an experiment, they will feel less pain even though at the neural level they're experiencing just as much. The physical pain is less when someone is holding your hand. It feels less, even though objectively it's the same level. It's an incredible finding. So an exercise here is to spend 60 seconds a day. Does anyone have 60 seconds a day? Noticing, I'm trying to make it really practical for your body, right? Um, to notice somebody else's needs. Now, just, you can do it here at the conference. You can even, even right now. Just look around the room or when we're at lunch or whatever and reflect around people. Just contemplate what needs do they have right now. Do they seem thirsty, tired, overworked? Are they struggling with something specific? And don't even do it for them. Don't rush in and pour them a glass of water. You know, that's for next week. Um, for now, just notice. Just notice what they, who they are. Um, and the point is to leave our world for a moment and get into the world of somebody else. 
There are other aspects we can do, which is communicating our needs to others, but I think that's a longer discussion. Okay, briefly, our relationship with uh, the spiritual world, with God. Um, just like interconnection and interpersonal connection, spiritual connection is about nurturing our relationship between two opposite pairs, us and, and, us and spirituality. And these are, there are a lot of parallels between these. Just as our body and soul need to get along and us and others have to get along, and those are very different entities, we're not the same as, as God. And this is actually very difficult to engage in and not because of a lack of faith. I don't think a lack of faith in God is the primary impediment to spiritual connection. Even with faith in God, it's still a great challenge. And there are many, there are four primary facets of it which are in the book, but the primary one that I want to talk to you about is developing a godly vision. Developing a godly vision involves two complementary and equally important elements. The first is developing a godly vision of ourselves and then developing a godly vision for ourselves. Developing a godly vision of ourselves and for ourselves. Okay, the of ourselves is the concept that human beings have divine potential in, in each of us and our immense capabilities, they can and they can be brought out by us during the course of our lives. Now, we often don't see this because the academic system ranks us in terms of like IQ or achievement, like it's very, you know, specific to like language and uh, language, lang language, uh, language skills and, um, and processing speed. Other aspects of IQ aren't even, they're not tapped by the academic system. But having a godly vision of ourselves means that no matter who you are, you have something in you that can and frankly should be brought out into this world and that's your job during your lifetime. Now in terms of what that is, that's a godly vision, godly vision for ourselves. What are your strengths? What are you good at? What do you love to do? If you could get paid to do one thing in this world, what would you think that would be? What would you love to? What would you love to show up at work and be like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever? What dreams and hopes and visions do you have for the world? And if those prompts don't help, then like, what's your biggest accomplishment that you've done in the past? What are you most pr proud of that you've ever done? When did you feel the happiness in terms of your work? I'll give you a case. There was a married, actually this person happened to have been an Orthodox Jewish man, and he was living in the five towns, and he was working in New York City. By the way, I calculated his commute to work was worse than mine. <laughs> Two hours a day, five days a week is 10 hours, right? From Boston, maybe four hours each way. Hilarious, right? But, okay. So, um, mid-30s, father to five kids, feeling disconnected from God, disconnected from his faith, disconnected from his family, hates commuting to New York, works in a big financial firm, earning a very decent living. And I said, like, what's going on? Like, you, you made it, buddy. Like, you got the five towns house, you got the kids, you got, you know, you got everything. You got a dream job, you're making a ton. What's going on? He's like, life is meaningless. I hate my existence. And this is just not what I'm built for. So I'm like, well, what are you built for? And he scoffs. And I'm like, no, 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 what are you built for? And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, what would you do if you could do, you know, if money wasn't an issue, if life was not an issue, what would you do? He said, I would be a philosophy writer, expecting that I'm going to laugh at him. And I said, 
okay, like, what do you want to write about? Deadpan. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, what do you want to write about? And he starts talking to me about this concept and that concept. Fortunately, I minored in philosophy in undergraduate in college, so I could actually keep up with the conversation. And uh, I said, when have you written about this? He's like, I don't know, five years? Like, it's been a long time. So we unearthed something, and I read it, and I'm like, wow, this is actually cogent. Like, this is, this is really, you're a good writer. And I said, you know, why don't you develop this into a chapter for a book or do a submission or something? Laughing, laughing, laughing at me. I'm like, okay. A couple weeks later, he's so depressed. I'm like, you want to come back to that idea about, like, you know, living your vision? He's like, yeah. So lots of self-doubt, though, and, you know, he's working on the Long Island Railroad trying to, like, hack out his chapter. The Wi-Fi cuts out. It's such a mess. It's so hard for him, but he pushes and pushes and pushes, and, and his mood dramatically improved. It ended up he continued in finance, but he was writing these philosophy articles on a regular basis, and it gave him such a, I think the word is a chias, right? It helped him to thrive, because he felt that he was bringing out his potential, his unique potential in this world. What you do in this world doesn't have to be necessarily your, your, what makes you, you know, able to pay your mortgage or your grocery bill, but you got to be doing something. You got to be doing something. Who here plays an instrument? Who here knows how to play an instrument? Okay. And of all of you who, oh, not too many, interesting. And of those who know how to play an instrument, when, did you play in the last week? No. No. Oh, wait, what about in the last month? That's a better example. No, no, you did. Okay, good. Fine. So that's a part of this. It could be as simple as that. Like, what's something that you could really do, you love to do, it makes you, I hope that, I assumed making music would make people excited, by the way. But you can see how this is a potentially leading to clinical phenomena, like, like anxiety or depression, and conversely, flourishing is about when we feel that we're adding something to this world. We have something to offer. So I'll give you a final exercise, which is to spend 60 days, 60 days, no, 60 seconds, dreaming about something that you want to do in this world, something exciting, something that makes you tick. And even if it's something embarrassing that you, know, you wouldn't want to put on your Instagram page, something that aligns with your specific passions, your skills, you could reflect on your successes to try to get to something. Consider what you want to do, though, with your time. And as you contemplate your dream, don't even do anything about it. Just sit and think about it. 60 seconds a day. Think about, you know, would that serve a spiritual purpose in this world? Would it make the world a better place? Would it make you happier? Would it add value to the lives of others? And try to build up a dream. And that's the, that's the third exercise that I'm going to leave you with. All right, there's a lot more to talk about with regarding the connections paradigm. Um, basically, I tried to describe the paradigm and I gave you briefly three of the 15 facets that are in my book about it. But one final concluding point is this. I mentioned at the beginning that we are either connected or disconnected at any moment in time. But the more important question is, are we growing in our connection over time? Human beings are, our growth is like a sine wave, which means you will go up and you will go down. I, I promise you, you will have moments of success and failure in the world. That is the way it is. And the question is, is that trajectory going up or down? So are the low points higher than the previous low points? And are the high points higher than the previous high points? Not are the low points higher than the previous high points. They always will be. So the question is, are we on that trajectory? And my hope and my prayer for this talk and the book is that it'll help people to build more connection 
and more importantly, to be on an upwards trajectory so we can all live with wellness and get out of the incredible mess that we are currently in. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.